to be an eternal principle or the material body to be perishable or everything to exist in the impersonal absolute truth or everything to be an inexplicable combination of matter and spirit feelings of separation are due only to illusory affection and nothing more alright do you remember each of his someone who's not looking what are each of his points if you believe this if you believe this if you believe this if you believe this he had four things Shall I read it again? O King, in all circumstances, whether you consider the soul to be an eternal principle, or the material body to be perishable, or everything to exist in the impersonal absolute truth, or everything to be an inexplicable combination of matter and spirit, feelings of separation are due only to illusory affection and nothing more. So what are the different belief systems, yeah? Uh, if you consider that you are the soul and you are eternal. Another? Body is perishable. Body is perishable. In other words, if you consider yourself to be the perishable body. Other two? Impersonal. If you consider everything is just the impersonal Brahman or? Or the combination of... Or it's inexplicable combination of matter and spirit. No matter what, which of those four philosophies you have, Lamentation is due only to illusion. illusion. Lamentation of separation is due only to illusion. What does this remind us of in the Bhagavad Gita? Reminds me of our um, chapter two. Krishna is telling Arjuna, no matter how you do it, doesn't matter how you do it. Yes. And he he also says, no matter how you, however you think, don't lament. He says, whether you think the soul is temporary or just is born and then dies forever, you know, whatever philosophy you have. It was a very similar. Whatever philosophy you have, Arjuna, still, none of these philosophies are going to support your present lamenting. So that's very clever, isn't it? Okay, Prabhupada's purport. The actual fact is that every living being is an individual part and parcel of the supreme being, and his constitutional position is subordinate cooperative service. Now that's interesting. Subordinate cooperative subordinate cooperative so we tend to think that those are mutually exclusive don't we if you're subordinate you're not cooperative because co means two operating with each other we tend to think of cooperation more as a partnership and subordination sub means what under and ordinate what are the ordinate numbers First, second, third, yes. So subordinate means that I'm below you in the hierarchy. You're my, if I'm your subordinate, then you're first and I'm second, or you're first and I'm tenth, or something like that. I'm, I'm below you in the order. And cooperative generally implies equality. But here he's saying that the constitutional position of the jiva is subordinate cooperative service. Interesting, isn't it? What, what would that indicate to us? Does that mean that even though they have an unequal relationship, one of them has acknowledged that that relationship exists, but I'm going to serve the other one? Okay. The higher. All right. Some more thoughts on what, how it could be both subordinate and cooperative. All the best girls are here. 
if we subordinate, then we have the spiritual master and be cooperative and that we're all engaged in service together as a sangha. Oh, that's a re- I hadn't even thought of it that way. That is really nice. We're Maybe subordinate to Guru, but we're cooperative as a sangha. Mary's you were saying about you know him being the he's the leader, but at the same time working. Okay, that we could in, uh, have this as an analogy to a, a good marital relationship where the man is in charge, the woman is subordinate, but they're still working together. It's a cooperative relationship. Do any of us have relationships with someone else we could think of that are like that, where we're the subordinate or they're the subordinate, yet we feel that it's cooperative? <laughs> So it's interesting um, if you study organizational culture and organizational structure. There are uh, there's one of four different kinds of organizational structure and culture. There's one which is entirely cooperative, which doesn't have practically any hierarchy or it has a, a changing hierarchy. The other three have a hierarchy, but of the three that have a hierarchy, the one that the organizational theorists call the family structure is based on cooperation. So that in, that in a family you have somebody who's in charge, but if they're just in charge as like the military general, you know, that the military general just says, fire your weapons, and you don't ask. Why, why don't you ask when you're on the battlefield? Because then everybody would get killed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no time on the battlefield to say, oh, well, let's sit down and talk about this. You know, so therefore in the military people are trained that you just follow orders without question. Of course, sometimes that leads to problems. If, if your leader is, is morally bankrupt, you can end up having a lot of problems with that. But the, the principle is that people have to be trained to just total obedience because in what they call the fog of war, it's not possible to sit down and make decisions. And the, the person who's in charge at the time has to be able to make split-second decisions based on the information at hand no matter what the initial strategy was, no matter what you agreed upon beforehand when you get down to it, they have to be made, able to make those decisions. However, most of us are not in the middle of a battlefield in our regular life. We don't want to live our life as if we're in the middle of a war. And Prabhupada talked a lot about not having a bureaucracy. A bureaucracy is the kind of system where there's a very strict hierarchy and not cooperation where everyone's just told what to do and they do it and there isn't a sense of cooperation. And Prabhupada said, if we have a bureaucracy, everything is ruined. He said, the whole, our whole society will be spoiled. So how do you have a society where there is a hierarchy, there's a GBC and there's a temple president, and there's, without having a bureaucracy? And one of the ways is you have it more like a family where there's a hierarchy, but there's a sense of cooperation. There's also a sense of partnership where the wife says, okay, my husband's the ultimate authority, but we are also partners. And even the children feel we can be partners with the parents and we can be partners with each other, that we don't just make all decisions, uh, just all yes, sir. And uh, it's interesting, one time the devotees were uh, complaining to Srila Prabhupada, oh, they're doing this, they're doing that, talking about the leaders, and Prabhupada looked at them and said, you are all they. He said, don't bring this bureaucracy, it will spoil everything. Do not, he said, do not say they. So, and this is our relationship, interesting enough, with Krishna. So Krishna values the relationships, 
where the subordination is reduced, even where sometimes he's subordinate to his devotees, where Krishna becomes subordinate to Mother Yasoda, to Nandamarsh, Krishna even sometimes becomes subordinate to his girlfriends, which Jayadev Goswami was struggling with this when he was writing Gita Govinda. You know, he was inspired to write Krishna Falls Down at the Feet of Radharani, and he just he couldn't bring himself to write that. It's like, what do I do? I can't write that Krishna falls at the feet of Radharani. He's the man. And then, you know, he thought, I'm just going to put this aside and go take a bath. We do that, right, when we're stuck with something. Come think about it later. And while he was taking a bath, Krishna came in his form. Oh, my dear wife. My dear wife. His name was wife's name, and he was Padmavati. My dear wife, Padmavati, I'm back from my bath. And uh, she said, oh, very nice. Here's your prasadam. You know, and she fed him. And then he went into the room, and he was writing. And then a little while later, Padmavati sees again. Jayadev comes to the door. He said, I just finished my bath. So what you? <laughs> you just you came before, and you just finished your bath, and you had prasadam. I never had prasadam. She said, well, I've already eaten. You know, the culture at that time and place was that the wife would eat after the husband and not with the husband. She said, well, I already took my meals. He's, he's like, you've never taken your meals before me before. My, my wife just doesn't do that. He was very confused. And he goes in the room and he sees, you know, it's written there. Krishna falls. So what he was thinking of writing was written. Krishna falls at the feet of writing. So Krishna sometimes subordinates himself to his devotees. And he likes supporting, even to the cowherd boys. Sometimes they win, right? And Krishna has to carry them on his shoulders. Just like, you know, Krishna's team and Balaram's team, right? You know that story? And Krishna's team lost. Balaram's team won. That's why Balaram was carrying Palumba on his shoulders. No, Palumba was carrying Balaram on his shoulders because Balaram's team won and Palumba, who was on Krishna's team, lost. So Krishna loses. Thank you to the cowherd boys. So Krishna likes this view of cooperation and he talks with Uddhava like Uddhava is an equal. He asks Uddhava, what advice would you like to give? So Krishna in his most intimate Akila Rasamrita Murti form doesn't always take the form of the boss. He doesn't always take the form of the You just do what I say because I'm the boss. Yet the devotees are always subordinate to him. I mean, I was just uh, hearing in the Bhagavatam where the snake snot swallows Nanda Maharaj, and Nanda Maharaj calls, Krishna, help me! So Krishna's just a little kid. So what grown man, father, is going to ask his little kid? You know, if you were in danger, would you ask Srita? Srita, help me, I'm in danger! I mean, that would be kind of funny. And the other coward men are all there. Why is he asking Krishna? Or, or when Indra's sending all the rain, you know, it's Krishna's seven years old. And everybody goes to Krishna and says, Krishna, help me. Which, if you think about it, isn't that rather odd? You know, again, if we had an earthquake here, would everybody go to Srita and say, Srita, Srita, help, help, we're having an earthquake. So uh, Krishna has this balance between this cooperative mood with the devotees and also that he is the superordinate and the devotees are all subordinate. So this is our constitutional position. Subordinate to cooperative service. So going on, either in his conditional material existence or his liberated position of full knowledge in eternity, the living entity is eternally under the control of the Supreme Lord. 
But those who are not conversant with factual knowledge put forward many speculative propositions about the real position of the living entity. And these were the different speculative positions put forward in this verse. It is admitted, however, by all schools of philosophy that the living being is eternal and that the covering body of the five material senses is perishable and temporary. The eternal living entity transmigrates from one material body to another by the laws of karma, and material bodies are perishable by their fundamental structures. Therefore, there is nothing to be lamented in the case of the souls being transferred into another body or the material bodies perishing at a certain stage. There are others also who believe in the merging of the spirit soul and the supreme spirit when it is uncovered by the material engagement. And there are others also who do not believe in the existence of spirit or soul, but believe in tangible matter. In our daily experience, we find so many transformations of matter from one form to another, but we do not lament such changing features. In either of the above cases, so thus impersonalism and materialism, the force of divine energy is uncheckable, no one has any hand in it, and thus there is no cause of grief. Yan mad yasei juvam lokam ajuvam va chakcho bayam sarvata na chiso chaste snehad anyachamo ajit. O king, in all circumstances, whether you consider the soul to be an eternal principle or the material body to be perishable or everything to exist in the impersonal absolute truth or everything to be an inexplicable combination of matter and spirit, feelings of separation are due only to illusory affection and nothing more. So here we have the circumstance of finding agreement. What can we agree on in very divergent philosophies, seemingly opposite philosophies? So we have gross materialism here. All we have is material nature. We have impersonalism here. We're part of the, the Brahman. We're just this body, or we're a soul. We really have those four philosophies, which appear to be completely opposite. There doesn't seem to be anything in harmony between them. Now, many times, as teachers of Krishna consciousness, we look for the differences, and we preach on the differences between philosophies. And we will say, you know, our Krishna conscious philosophy is better. It's the best philosophy because we have this and this and this that's different. And I know that I've meditated a lot as a, in, in my service of, of teaching and preaching as to what unique features are in Krishna consciousness. What are we giving that you can't find pretty much anyplace else? Because I feel if you only emphasize the similarities... The, the areas in which we agree, then why should someone take up Krishna consciousness? At the same time, you don't want to only emphasize that which we, have, which we offer, which is unique. But you also want to be able to relate to people where they are and what you have in common with them. So in psychology, they call this, what he, what's being done right here by, I believe, Vidura, is what's called pace-pace-lead. That you walk with somebody you pace them, you walk with them, and then you lead them. You don't immediately come in and lead. You know, on book distribution, we often do this. We go up to somebody, you know, well, what, what, what do you do? What are you interested? Oh, you know, I'm a student of psychology. Oh, this book is full of psychology. Mm -hmm. right? You find something in common with them, and then once you have a commonality, and once you have a rapport with them, then you can take them to a higher place then you can take them further. But if you immediately try to take people to a higher place, they'll resist you. Also, we tend to follow people with whom we first have a feeling of trust, which again relates to this subordinate cooperative thing. And we talked about 
yesterday. It's funny when you travel, it, it almost seems like it was a week ago, right? Doesn't seem like that. Doesn't seem like it was yesterday. So yesterday in New Vrindavan, we talked about the principle of guru and how Prabhupada quotes that nobody. We actually have right here, in fact, from yesterday. Look at that. This was from a lecture Prabhupada gave in Bombay, April 12, 1976, on the Bhagavatam 7.12.1, where he says, Therefore, Brahmachari means living under direction of Guru, Gururhitam. How he can be simply thinking of benefiting the spiritual master. Unless that position comes, nobody can serve Guru. It is not an artificial thing. The Brahmachari, the disciple, must have genuine love for Guru. Then he can be under his control. Otherwise, why should one be under the control of another person? You know, in Prabhupada, right after talking about subordinate cooperative service, he says everyone is under the control of God. Even if you're a materialist, you're under the control of God. But it's not a very pleasing way to be under the control of God, isn't it? So another reason that we present like this is to first get a feeling of trust between ourselves and another person. As we're first saying, please follow me, first the person has to trust that we care about them, that we understand them, that we have some connection with them. And this is what Vidura is exemplifying here. Uh, years ago I went to, uh, I used to go regularly as a teacher, Gurukul teacher, to educational conferences. And I tried going to those for public education and I found that their view was so different from what we were doing. It was very hard to learn much. So after a while I started going to those put on by the Christian organizations. Unfortunately I couldn't go openly as a devotee because they would just see the differences. I also went to a lot of homeschooling conventions. Yeah. But at the, at, at the Christian homeschooling conventions, right, where was I? I got lost. Where was I talking? You weren't letting into the Christian one because you could tell why you were... Yeah, but I was bringing that up for a reason. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. I know what I wanted to bring up. Thank you. So when I went there, I went to a series of wonderful seminars by Dr. Bruce Wilkinson on the seven laws of the learner. And what he did was he went through the Bible and he analyzed how does Jesus teach and how does God teach. He went through every instance in the Bible where God was directly teaching or Jesus was directly teaching and he analyzed what were their teaching methodologies. And I taught these seven laws of the learners also to devotees. We did a, a whole seminar in North Carolina, even with our GBC. And one of the best teachers in our movement, Yasoda in Vrindavan, uses a lot of these principles. But I've often thought I'd love to do that with our Vaishnav scriptures, to go through and see how do the Acharyas teach? How does Narada Muni teach? How does Vidura teach? And of course, to analyze how does Srila Prabhupada teach? How does Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati teach? And here we have an example how Vidura is teaching. He's teaching by saying, you know, okay, you may think this. You may. He doesn't say, you have to have this philosophy. He's not saying that. Because otherwise, Dhritarashtra might say, well, of course I'm absorbed in lamentation. After all, this world is all there is. Why shouldn't, why shouldn't I lament when this is everything? He's saying, no, even if you think the world is everything... It's all perishable and mutable. Why lament for perishable and mutable things, as Prabhupada says in the purport? Things are always changing. When you, you know, the tree dies and you turn it into a table, do you cry? Oh, now it's a table. You know, this would be foolish. 
that things naturally change in life. Of course, there may be some difficulty for us because we're attached to things as they are. Right? Like we have this wedding coming up tomorrow and my daughter was saying to me a week or two ago on the phone, oh, it's going to be so hard. I said, well, that's why people cry at weddings. <laughs> it, it's just natural. Right? When there's a change in life, then you, you may lament, oh, things are not the way they are anymore. You know, my kid's graduating or my kid's getting married. And probably talks to you about dying when somebody dies. But in the ultimate, if all we are is chemicals, if all we are is matter, if that's your philosophy of life, what is there to lament? If we're spiritual, what is there to lament? Somebody's just moving from one room to another at death. We're all eternal. We all have an eternal connection. Right? Why be crying over that? If all we are is the body, everything changes all the time. Who, all we are is just a bunch of chemicals. Why lament over that? You know, we don't lament that the flour and the sugar and the water turn into a cake. We don't say, oh, where's my flour? Oh, I missed my flour, now it's a cake. So if all we are is just a, a bunch of chemicals, then why would we be crying? that the body is now turned into earth. And if you say that, well, we're all just the Brahman, then we're all just the Brahman. Why lament that the Brahman appears in this illusory form and that illusory form? And if you say it's all the inscrutable will of the Lord, then why lament that? Because the will of the Lord... I don't mind children noises. I hope none of you mind children noises. Am I talking loudly enough to overcome the child noises? You're totally good. Is that all right? Okay. As long as she's not, you know, screaming. No, it's fine. It's fine. That'll probably be me in 30 years, you know, so. We won't put a pacifier. You won't put a pacifier in my mouth when I'm making the noises. Okay. I promise. You promise. All right. You'll let me just squeal. So in, in all these cases, what is there to lament? What is there to lament? So I think I'd like to, I wanted to talk mostly about how that we should preach and how we should have a society but I want to look just briefly about this idea of lamentation uh, in the context of preaching and having a society. I think that we tend to be heaviest with people when they are lamenting. That's when we tend to take our philosophy and hit them over the head. Right? Of all the circumstances where we tend to use our philosophy as, as a weapon, it, it tends to be this one, that when people are lamenting for something in this world. And, I mean, I know I've been guilty of this hundreds of times. I, I remember this one devotee who came to me. She said, uh, she said, when I got married for the second time, my husband said to me before we got married, I will marry you on condition that the day I turn 50, I take Vanaprastha. And she said, okay. But she hadn't really understood what he meant by that. So they were just going on as grahastas, normal grahasta life, and on his 50th birthday, he just simply left. <laughs> No lead up, no, you know, transition period, no, he just left. And once he left, he stopped communicating with her entirely. No emails, no phone calls, she couldn't get a hold of him. And he left her, and they had made no plan, you know, and she, they had this huge farm property. And all of a sudden, she had the full responsibility for this whole property. So as you can imagine, she didn't handle it very well. And she came to me, a hysterical, you know, blubbering mass of pudding and she was, she was hysterical 
And it turned out some months later that he regretted how he had done that, and he contacted her and apologized, and etc. Although he didn't f really fix anything. But I remember saying to her at the time, you know, I tried to preach to her, and it wasn't effective at all, as in not at all. In fact, she became very angry with me. And then finally I said, you know, it's just, just okay. I just gave her a hug. I said, it's okay. It's okay. Just chant Hare Krishna. It's okay. It'll all work out. It'll, it, it'll be okay. I, you know, I met her, I guess, two years later, I met her, and she said, everything you said to me was good, but I couldn't hear it at the time. And she ended up being very, actually very, very nicely situated in her service and in Krishna consciousness. But we often do that. When someone's going through some sort of a crisis, we just, you know, try to preach to them. And it, it doesn't work very well. Even Krishna's saying to Arjuna, you know, while speaking learned words, he starts with that. He doesn't just come at him and say, you idiot. And he says it gently. He says, while speaking learned words, you are mourning for that which is not worthy. Very same thing. You're mourning for that which is not worthy of grief. You know, learned people don't lament like this for the living or the dead. So he doesn't say to him directly, but he says to him indirectly. You're supposed to be a learned person. This is not what learned people do. And yes, you're speaking very learned words, but you're not acting like a learned person. So again, this pace lead. He's, he's saying, okay, yes, it's learned, but you're not doing it very well. And the same applies to our own lamenting. Have you noticed that? That philosophy is hard when we're lamenting about something? Have you all noticed that? That that's the hardest time to be philosophical? Of all of our times... It seems that for most of us, being philosophical in joy is a little easier. Wow, Krishna's arranged this wonderful thing, and that wonderful thing, and this wonderful thing. Right? Krishna's arranged this terrible thing. <laughs> what am I chanting right Krishna for? What <laughs> Krishna does is arrange all these terrible things. I just did that the other day with Krishna. I had just been praying to him, you know, Krishna, please help me surrender. And then he did, and I'm like, why did you help me surrender? <laughs> I know I asked you to, but I really didn't want you to. <laughs> so this is, this is the time when it's the most struggle for us to say, okay, here's the hand of God, here's the philosophy, I'm a spirit soul. And in the world in general, people don't like it. You know, there's been some big crisis, and someone comes and says, you know, this is the hand of God. And everybody gets very upset, isn't it? There'll be some plane crash or some epidemic and some religious leader says, this is the hand of God. This is your karma. This is your karma, Prabhu. I didn't do anything to deserve this. <laughs> so especially in times of lamentation, for ourself and for others, especially when, when things are very painful for us or somebody else, is especially the time to deal with things. You know, you can say, yes, there's no need to, need to lament, but also you want to connect with the other person where they are. I mean, what I should have said to this woman is, wow, that really stinks. You know, that's not the way to change your... That's not the way to make a change between one ashram and another. That's not the, the proper way to go about it. He didn't take care of you very nicely. I mean, I should have said that to her instead of just saying, well, this is an opportunity for your detachment and surrender. <laughs> Which it was. It was. So that was truthful. So, of course, this all leads us to the five austerities of speech. 
Anybody know what the five austerities of speech are? Yes? Honesty. Honesty. Beneficial. Beneficial. Truthfulness. Truthfulness, which honesty, yes. What are the other ones? Pleasing. That the, the message itself should be pleasing. Not agitating. The word should be not agitating. Beneficial. Beneficial. Reciting the Vedic literature. So we should speak the truth to people. We shouldn't lie. Sometimes is lying moral? Yes. 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 So I read a book about people hiding Jews from the Nazis in World War II. And, the, and it was family members, sisters. And one sister had practically this vow of never lying. So she was hiding some Jews in a, a cellar with a hidden door. And the Nazi soldiers came in the house. And she said, you know, are you hiding Jews in here? Yes. Where are they hiding? Under the floor. <laughs> they didn't end up looking there. But her other sister said, I don't think this is the proper use of truthfulness. And this is the example, of course, that Krishna gives. That if a murderer asks you where his intended victim has run to, then you lie. But generally, truthful. So truthfulness is not an absolute. Does that make sense to everybody? Truthfulness is relative. There are times when lying is a higher moral principle than truthfulness. Okay, what about the message itself should be pleasing? Is that absolute? No. No. Sometimes you have to give unpleasing messages to people. Sometimes the doctor has to tell you you have a terminal disease. Sometimes you have to tell somebody, hey, there's a car coming. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to give people a message that is not pleasing. Although, in former times, messengers of unpleasing news were often punished. <laughs> and messengers of pleasing news were often rewarded. Now, if we did that today, I think it would cut down on a lot of criticism and gossip. <laughs> You know, this concept that I shouldn't be the messenger. Do you know what he did? <gasps> Keep this confidential, but, you know, so all this kind of stuff that goes on. So the pleasing message is not absolute. What about words that are not agitating? So modern society likes to use very agitating words, a lot of curse words and stuff to make their point stronger. But the series of speech is you speak things in pleasant language. Is that absolute? Might there be some time when you would speak harsh language to somebody? Yeah. yeah. Prabhupada uses rascal. Prabhupada uses rascal. And Prabhupada says, I'm not saying, Krishna is saying. <laughs> <laughs> Krishna uses avajananti mam mudha, he is saying. Isn't it also true that sometimes when you aren't harsh, like for a very serious thing, that people won't take you seriously? Yes, so there may be some times that if you don't use harsh language, that people will, will not take you seriously. So is that an absolute language that's not agitating to others? No. Okay, reciting the Vedas, is that absolute? Yes. Pretty much, yes. pretty much. If it's not absolute, it's pretty close. But what about beneficial? Is that absolute? Depends on how you define yeah. beneficial. <laughs> if it's truly beneficial, if it's genuinely beneficial, not just that you think it's beneficial. Or that they think it's beneficial. Or that they think it's beneficial. Something that genuinely benefits the speaker and the hearer. Would that be absolute? Yes. Yes. That would be absolute. So speech has to always be for someone's good, for the good of the speaker and the good of the hearer. Of course, that implies that you have to know what's good. Mm. If you're in the mode of ignorance, you think what's good is bad and what's bad is good. If you're in the mode of passion, you get all mixed up, and only if you're in the mode of goodness can you really see what's good and what's bad. Yes? Well, you just give an example of your friend, and uh, you're trying to share with her some Vedic knowledge, but that didn't turn out to be so-called beneficial. So how would you take that case? Well, I wasn't really thinking of benefiting her in that case. When we speak 
instruction that's too high for someone to, to hear or that is not appropriate for that time, then what, what are we really operating under? What fault? Yeah. It is one of the offenses, yes, of preaching. It's, it's related to preaching the glories of the Lord to the, unfa- to the faithless. But what bad quality do we have when we're doing that? Self-praise. Yes, self-praise. Yes, it's pride. That basically, if I say something to somebody that they are unlikely to accept, that is unlikely to actually help them because they're not willing to accept it, then I can take the mood that when they don't accept it, I can criticize them. Right? So I tell you something that you're not ready or willing to hear. Or maybe you're not re- ready and willing to hear it from me. You might be ready and willing to hear it from him. Or maybe you're not ready and willing to hear it at 10 a.m. But maybe you might be willing, you know, maybe while you're cooking you're not ready and willing to hear it. But you might be ready and willing to hear it at another time. If I try to force it on you when you're not receptive, then I can say, oh, just see, that foolish person doesn't listen to what I'm saying. I know better than them. And it's very connected with pride. That it's much more I'm trying to force my will upon you. Again, we going back to this subordinate and cooperative. I'm trying to make myself your superior, but there's not a mood of cooperation. There's not a mood of reciprocation. And you can, why is that an offense? Because if you preach something to someone who's not able or willing to hear it, what do you create? Huh? Disharmony. Disharmony, yes. You create the opposite of cooperation. You create, you create something that's the antithesis of the truth. The truth is about harmony. You know, Krishna's flute playing is very harmonious. Krishna doesn't play, you know, some out-of-time noise like a lot of modern so-called music. It's not his... <laughs> we were at the um, Woodstock Festival in Poland and we were taking Rathiatra around and there were these people dressed all in black with strange, anyway, strange-looking people. And they were listening to something that sounded to me like animals growling. It was just like, ah. And I thought, is that supposed to be music? It sounds like something from the hellish planets, you know. <laughs> Rurus. Or, so that's, that's not, um, I really like C.S. Lewis. He says that the, the demons like noise. And he says, you know, the saintly persons, they like silence or music. So Krishna likes music. Prabhupada says the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. So yes, it creates disharmony. What else does it create when I, when I preach to someone who's not receptive? It makes them further away from... Yes, it pushes them further away from Krishna. It makes them antagonistic. For example, that's when you go into college campuses... Your book distribution will see uh, the Christian preachers on their little stands. Yeah. And they'll be shouting out to people as they're walking by. And if you just look at what they're saying, they're technically they're speaking Bible verses. But the way they're doing it, they're very angry, you're not listening already. Yes. People are getting more turned off. That's right. People will walk or, or, or to avoid them. Yeah. Yes. It makes them more atheistic. So that certainly isn't pleasing to Krishna. So, yes, you can't know what's a benefit. That's those five austerities of speech or the austerities in the mode of goodness. You can't know what's beneficial to yourself and others unless you are in the mode of goodness or in bhakti because only in the mode of goodness or bhakti can you see things as they are. Right? In goodness, Krishna says, you can see what's binding and what's liberating, right? What's to be done and what's not to be done. 
you can see the results of your activities. Whereas the mode of passion is sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. And the mode of ignorance, you get it completely backwards. Does this make sense to anyone? So if we want to be effective preachers and teachers of Krishna consciousness, if we want to effectively share Krishna consciousness with others, then we want to study how do the great acharyas do it? How do they present it? What, are the, what techniques do they use? And even when they're saying very strong things, to say to someone, you shouldn't lament because all of your children and grandchildren have been killed in a war. Wow. In, in World War Two, I think it was, there was a family that had five sons and they were all assigned to the same ship in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And when the ship was bombed, all five children died at once. And after that, the military made a policy not to uh, put siblings in the same location. I mean, of course, if that's your destiny, all your kids are going to die anyway, but Hare Krishna. Mm-hmm. But at least that, that became their policy, that that was just too much for somebody. But this, that's what happened to Dhritarashtra. I mean, he's the one who put all his kids in that situation, Hare Krishna, but still, you know, a hundred kids, you figure one of them's going to live. <laughs> that was why Gantari, at the end, she did that thing with giving Duryodhana the special benediction from uncovering her eyes. Yeah, but how are you going to say to someone that all of their children and all of their grandchildren have been killed, their entire dynasty has been wiped out? How are you going to say to such a person, don't lament? No, there's nothing to lament for. So how carefully and, and considerably, with, with humility, with compassion, with connection, Vidura is doing this. And how we should do this, both for others when they are lamenting, and frankly also for ourselves. We shouldn't beat ourselves up with Krishna consciousness either. You know, if you use Krishna consciousness as a weapon even against yourself, after a while you'll become bitter and further away. So to treat ourselves with kindness, to treat ourselves where we are. Another thing about the mode of goodness is knowing the proper time and circumstances. If you notice the difference between the modes, the mode of ignorance is often categorized by the wrong time. Right? Sometimes the only difference between something and goodness and ignorance is it's the wrong time or it's the wrong place presented in the wrong way. So to be a very expert in our judgment. And we can watch ourselves. How do I deal with others when they are lamenting? How do I deal with myself when I'm lamenting? Do I, do I connect first and then lead? Or do I just try to lead? So questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Yes? I get chastisement sometimes, I mean. I figure I might as well ask for it. Yes, David might have approved. Where it became very manipulative. Where I realized, wow, I'm just exploiting this person based on my uh, 
was there was a time when uh, I was living in an ashram as a really menial servant in a poverty-stricken condition. And at that time, one of my god sisters had a business selling cosmetics. She asked me to help her with her business, and I'm not a business person. I don't. It's funny that I should be by my family, but anyway, I'm not. So, as a favor to her, I helped her, and it would also lend me a little bit of cash, which at that time I was really cash poor. I was kind of everything poor, but anyway. So I, but I agreed still to help her. I, I wouldn't have agreed for the money. So we would go into the mall, and we were selling something to buff your fingernails so they looked like they were polished when they weren't really. So they looked like you would put polish on them. It like smoothed out the little ridges so your fingernails became more reflective. And we would, I don't want to use the word accost, but we would accost people in, as they were walking uh, down the corridor of the mall. We had a kiosk in the middle, and we would you know, have this little buffer with us, and we would go up to them, and we'd say, hey, can I, can I demonstrate this on one of your fingers? And we would. And they'd look at it, and they would always be astonished. Always. And then a certain portion of them we would bring back to the kiosk, and then we would sell them all this stuff. Now, A, none of the stuff we were selling them, none of it did anybody need. There wasn't one single thing we were selling that anybody needed. Everybody could have caught it long just fine without any of those things we were selling. Two, everything we were selling was way overpriced for what it was. Because I was getting a commission. The people running it was... Everybody was taking a cut. There were, I don't know how many middlemen, 20 probably. Between the, the actual manufacturer of the stuff, if you, if you looked at the ingredients, what they were worth, and what we were selling it for was this huge disparity. But I very quickly saw that most of the techniques that I had used on book distribution, I was using there. That I was doing something very, very, very similar. I was basically stopping strangers as they were walking in front of me, showing them something and convincing them that they should get something that when they woke up that morning, they had not the slightest desire to get. In other words, I wasn't fulfilling a need of theirs that they were aware of as being a need. On book distribution, the people were not generally, with some exceptions, but generally on book distribution, people were not waking up in the morning and going, you know, I want to find those devotees and get a Srimad Bhagavatam. <laughs> some, some. I mean, every once in a while, you would meet somebody that would say, oh, I've been looking for you guys. Do you have a Bhagavad Gita? That would happen sometimes. But it wasn't the general thing. So it was very similar, but I never felt that I was being manipulative when I sold Prabhupada's books. But I felt very manipulative working for this cosmetic thing. It, I felt very dirty. I didn't like it. I didn't like, although I, I made a little bit of money, I didn't like the money that I made from it. I didn't enjoy it. You know, it, it, I was, I couldn't wait until I could stop doing it. And I, I felt that Krishna arranged that just to solidify in me that I never wanted to do anything like that, that that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. But so what makes something manipulative, I told this story, because what makes something manipulative or not? Is it the external behavior? Is it the fact that you can understand something about people's psychology so that you can influence them? Does that in and of itself make it manipulative? Is the only way that you should influence other people to just sort of um, dispassionately 
lay out a series of factual information, walk away from it and say, this is your choice, here are all the facts, do what you want. Should that, is that the only non-manipulative way? And could you ever really lay out all the facts anyway? You know, how, 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 do, you, how do you have a way of convincing people to change that you're reasonably sure is in their best interest? That's absolutely non-manipulative. Is there such a technique? Now, let's say that you did that. Let's say you just said, okay, you could know that you were laying out all the possible facts and every possible way of looking at the situation. Like here, he's laying out four ways of looking at the situation. Every possible way of looking at it and all the facts and said, now choose. How would that person probably feel? Probably very confused. Also, would most people even take the time to look at all that stuff? And are people only intellect? No. Do we make decisions based on only intellect? No. Do we want to make decisions based on only intellect? No. Is that who we even are as souls? No. <clears throat> you know, when, when you study how people make decisions, it's, it's on the basis of both logic, intellect, and emotion. So there are certain techniques which by their nature are more or less manipulative. That is true. And we study, um, in our, our high school, we study about logic, right, Tony? And certain, te- certain techniques are intrinsically more manipulative than others. So there are certain techniques which lend themselves more to Satvagun and certain techniques which lend themselves more to Rajagun or to Tamagun. That's a fact. You know, if you are intentionally not giving people the full amount of information, then that's an inherently manipulative technique. If you are intentionally hiding something from them, that you know that if you were to give them that information, they would most likely make a different choice. You know, that's a kind of lying, giving people a half truth. We call that, what do we call that, Tony? Remember? Card stacking. You only show part of the picture. Also, other very manipulative techniques are transfer, where you associate something the person wants that's unrelated to what it is you're trying to sell them. You know, and of course, the biggest thing that people use for transfer is, of course, sex. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, what does sex have to do with the car you're driving? It's a car. So, you know, or your washing machine, or your, you know, your laundry soap, or something. You know, some beautiful half-dressed woman there. Get this washing machine. So that, that's, that's what's very common, or, you know, that you'll be strong, or freedom, or you'll be a patriot, or something, you know. <laughs> something ridiculous. So that's also very manipulative if you try to tie into something that people want that have nothing at all to do with what you're selling, with what you're trying to convince them to get, then that's also intrinsically manipulative. But what really makes something manipulative or not is your motive, and does it really benefit somebody? 
So if, it, if your motive is to benefit someone and this thing will benefit someone, then tailoring your approach such that they're likely to see that and accept that is intelligent, not manipulative. You're not, you're not trying to use them. To, so manipulate comes from manual, comes from hand. That I'm trying to take someone as if they were an object and I'm trying to shape them according to my desire. You know, what was my motive for selling them this, you know, fingernail polisher? Was it for their benefit? What benefit were they going to get out of it? It was so I could make money and so my friend could make money. I mean, primarily it was to help my friend who was employing devotees. But that seemed very dirty to me. I'm trying to convince you to get something you don't need and you didn't really want yesterday and spending more money on it than is rightfully to spend so someone else can make money. It wasn't... But if I'm trying to convince you to do something that's going to give you unlimited eternal joy and peace and knowledge... Of course, I do get a commission in the marketplace of the Holy Name. When you get other people to take up spiritual life, you get two things. First of all, you get a wholesaler price. When, you, when you're one of the, the sellers of, of Krishna consciousness, you definitely get a wholesaler price. But you have to work very hard to be a seller of Krishna consciousness, so it's not just a freebie. And you also get a commission. I mean, Prabhupada says we have to shed gallons of blood to make one person a devotee, so it's not, you know... So you... The wholesaler price and the commission are given for a reason. But that's the, you know, the genuine benefit of that person. And at least materially, on a material level, what benefit does it give to you? Now, if you are preaching for some subtle or gross material benefit, then you also have to watch this. And we're going to be teaching Krishna Willing Raghunathaskal Swami's Manashikshi here on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We have a box over there with only 20 sets, which is a very small number for a big community. Um, and Raghunathaskal Swami goes very, very deep into how to figure out whether your motives are pure. And it's, it's, it's deep, heavy stuff, what the Krishnas would call convicting. It's very deep stuff that you look in your heart and say, you know, I was talking with one devotee and saying, well, you know, when we're a preacher, we have to care about our reputation. But maybe the only reason we're preaching is to get a reputation. <laughs> right? If you're Bajan and Andy, what do you care what anybody thinks of you? It doesn't matter, right? But when you're a preacher, you, Lord Chaitanya said you have to care, right? A black spot on a white cloth is very visible because we were... We were talking about how to be preachers without caring about reputation. So sometimes it's, it's hard to untangle it. What, am, I, am I preaching just so I can say, yes, I'm a great preacher? Am I distributing books just so I can go back to the temple and everyone says, you distributed the most books. What's, what, what's going, and if that's the case, then there is some manipulation so what's Krishna's answer? Krishna's answer to Arjuna. Arjuna says, I'm fighting this war for the wrong reasons. I'm fighting it to enjoy a kingdom and I'm not going to even enjoy the kingdom because I will have killed my Bhishma. How am I going to enjoy the kingdom after killing Bhishma and Drona? You know, 
And if you think about Arjuna's relationship with Bhishma and Drona, he says, I, there's no way I'm going to enjoy this kingdom. He said, I won't even enjoy the kingdom by killing Duryodhana and his brothers. And to speak of Bhishma and Drona. And then all, of, you know, all these sins and the society will fall apart. Right? He was saying, I'm doing it for the wrong motive, so let me stop doing it. And Krishna said, no. Do it but change your motive. Do it but change your consciousness. So our solution is not, well, I won't use any knowledge of human psychology and human sociology and I won't use my knowledge of human relationships in the service of the Lord because I could use it manipulatively. But rather, how can I use this in a non-manipulative fashion? And you know, I think for a lot of us who are, for lack of a better word, converts to Krishna consciousness, I hate that word, but I don't know how else to, to say it. I, I, those of us who join the Krishna consciousness movements as adults without being born into it, we have a tendency to go through a fanatic phase where we take all of the things that we've learned in the world, all of our talents, all of our knowledge, and because we use them for ill purposes, greater or lesser, we take them and chuck them in the dumpster. And we say, that's all Maya, that's all terrible, you know, I'm going to forget all of that. And then generally, 10 or 15 years down the road, you say, wait a minute, there's something I threw in the dumpster that I can use. <laughs> you know, maybe I could use this in Krishna's service. And I see kids who are born into Krishna consciousness, if they're trained as devotees. Just being born into Krishna consciousness isn't enough if your parents don't actually train you as devotees. But if you're trained in Krishna consciousness from the time that you're born, you tend to have a much more balanced view of these things. You tend to see your your you know, your so-called material knowledge and the, as being part of your Krishna consciousness. You have this yukta vairagya instead of this, well, anything that's not japa is maya. <laughs> but the way I should preach, I'll just go up to them and blazing tilak and dhoti and Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. I mean, I've known devotees. That was their only method of preaching to people. And says here, dogs, hogs, camels, and asses, that's you, you know, and that's, I don't know what to say about that, except that I was guilty of that for a long time, I was the victim of that, and I was the perpetrator of that for a long time, and after, what? At least I wasn't allowed to give class, that's a very good point, thank you, Krishna, that I, it was 10 years in the movement before I was allowed as a woman to give class. Thank you. I never thought about that before. How embarrassing that would be. You know, I'm even happy that my, my first classes were all recorded on cassette tape, you know. And when we moved from North Carolina, we had these, these milk crates full of cassette tapes of my old classes, and we just threw them all out. And the, a lot of me said, thank God <coughs> that they're all thrown. Does that answer your question? Anybody else? It's getting late. Yes, for me. Um, I was thinking about the night defense, how it's, it's uh, defensive to preach towards the one in the faithless. But we were reading yesterday or the day before, and preaching is the essence where Prabhupada is most pleased when you when you share Krishna consciousness unrestrictedly, not considering who's fit or unfit. Okay. And so I was kind of thinking, 
how would you share Krishna consciousness with someone who's grossly materialistic and they don't want to do with it? <laughs> Prasadam that looks like and tastes like the food of their culture. If you have somebody who's really opposed, you can... And you can have it in a restaurant. So just like in London, downstairs there's Govindas. Right, John? And upstairs they're serving the free lunch. Right? In Soho Street. At the same time, downstairs there's Govindas, and you just walk up the stairs, and there's free lunch being served. And you don't even have to go to the class. You could just show up for person. And there's a lot of people who would never walk those stairs and eat the Mahaprasadam without paying. They would rather sit at a table and chair and pay money. But it's a restaurant. It's a restaurant. And I'm buying pizza. But you don't go to someone who's really antagonistic and say, you are a hog dog, camel or ass. You are wasting your life. You should just surrender to Krishna now. God is blue and plays a flute and takes care of cows and has a girlfriend and you should surrender to him right now. You know, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's not favorable, but you can give them a, a pizza. Maybe you can even give them, you know, for those of you who are in this frame of mind, maybe you can even give them puris and, and rice as, you know, Indian food. So there, there's some way. And some people you can't do anything for. Some people Krishna can't do anything for. Krishna says that. He says there's some people that they just, some souls that just, he puts them into demoniac species of life, birth after birth, because that's what they want. So there are some souls that Krishna just says, hey, let me know when you're ready. I can't do anything for you. There's some people who won't even take prasadam. There's some people who, you know, won't hear the holy name. So there's... Those, and therefore the, the, the Majjhima Adhikari devotee. You know, if you're Lord Nichananda, <laughs> you can try to preach to those people. But for most of us, we, we, as on the Majjhima platform, if somebody's that antagonistic, we keep our distance from them and we, we leave them alone. And we let, we let Lord Nichananda, I mean, even Adhoitacharya said, I can't deal with it, Lord Chaitanya has to come. So part of humility is saying, um, this person is beyond my capability to, to handle. And then you can pray. You can say, hey, Lord Nityananda, would you, would you please come? You know, Haridas Thakur complained about, you know that? He complained about Lord Nityananda to Lord Chaitanya. He said, you've sent me on Sankirtan with a madman. <laughs> so let, let him deal with it. But we usually have something that we can give people. Or you find... Like, uh, you know, Indra Swami does these programs that he advertises as Indian culture. And people who would never come to a Hare Krishna temple, and they come and they see the, the dancing and the dramas, and then they take prasadam, and then they stay for the philosophical lecture, and then they take a book, and, you know. So, a way, again, it's pace, pace, lead. So you can preach to people who are not thinking of who's fit and unfit, and with those people, you need to preach according to time, place, and circumstance, and with their particular framework. And with, you know, how, how uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite preaching engagements was to the graduate class of the Southern Baptist ministers in North Carolina. I first, first 
got to speak to them by the will of God that Bir Krishna Swami, who was scheduled, his father died, I think, and he had to go to the funeral. So I had to fill in for him at the last minute. And then I was able to speak to them another two years. And you know, I did not talk to them about deity worship. I'm not going to talk to Southern Baptist ministers about deity worship. Just, or reincarnation. I didn't talk to them about deity worship and reincarnation. I talked to them about how there's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita that's almost identical to a verse in Corinthians. I talked to them about that. I talked to them about, about our commonalities. And we got these Southern Baptist ministers okay, to chant Hare Krishna. Wow. Yeah. Southern Baptist ministers. You remember that, right? Were you there? When we went, when we went to, twice they came to the temple, once we went. Temple. When we went to their university, I brought my high school students with me. And I think it was Shamala Kishori who was leading, I don't know if any of you know Shamala Kishori, you know her, who was leading the kirtan. And they were all chanting. But if I had come in there, you know, talking about the deities, there's no way. They would have just rejected us as idol worshippers, and that would have been the beginning, middle, and end of that. Now, why were they studying Krishna consciousness? Most of these people were going on to be missionaries, and some of them were going to be missionaries in India. India. So why were they wanting to study Krishna consciousness? They wanted to study Krishna consciousness to find a way to convert the Hindus to Christianity. That's why they were studying world religions. That was their motive. They were going to use the reverse. Yeah, that was their motive. But what my goal with, with them was not to get them to be full-on devotees and shave up and put on tilak and move into the temple. That was not my goal with them. My goal with them was just that they should respect that we are a bona fide religion. That they should have respect. That they didn't need to convert us. That we were already on a good path. That was what I was aiming for. And I'm just thinking, just recently I met someone who's becoming a devotee who's what's called a lay Franciscan. So he's, he's a Franciscan monk, but he doesn't live in a a monastery. He lives in the world and he's one of the most popular and well-respected Catholic preachers in the world. Travels worldwide. Um, and he's, he's taken up Krishna consciousness very quietly. Um, you know, his mother and his brother uh, don't know that he's, he's practicing Krishna consciousness. And he doesn't use his legal name with the devotees. So, you know, we were, we were talking a little bit about how he could bring Krishna conscious principles into his preaching. If he were to go to the people he ministers to in Catholicism and just again say, you know, God is blue and plays a flute, they would turn around and leave. They wouldn't listen to him anymore. Even if he talked about reincarnation, they wouldn't listen to him anymore. He is able to preach about vegetarianism. And he is able to bring in aspects of Krishna consciousness. And I said, you know, Krishna's placed you in this position for a reason. So just because we preach to the fit and unfit doesn't mean that we don't... You know, we have the devotees who used to do that. What is it called? Straight-edge music? Uh-huh. And to, to preach to the bikers and the... So you're going you're gonna to preach to the bikers differently than you're going to preach to the... Hindu doctors. But you still, you preach to the fit and the unfit. And when we study Manashiksha, Rajyantas Goswami says, Dharma, Adharma, give up Dharma and Adharma. 
but you may have to look like you're a dharmic person in the world to preach to those who think like that and you may even have to look like you're an adharmic person in the world to preach to those sort of people is that okay yes. fit and unfit but not all the same program you know so in London they had Govindas downstairs they had the Mahaprasadam with a class upstairs and down the street they had food for all so three prasadam distribution programs going on simultaneously but for different audiences now once people become devotees it doesn't matter anymore but how to bring them is that right we should definitely end here thank you very much Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai